So there's two times a year when you come to church, you know what you're going to get, right? Come on Christmas, you're going to hear about the birth of Christ, Bethlehem, the shepherds singing in the fields, and the manger. You come on Easter, you're going to hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bart Ehrman has a new book out. I picked it up Friday uh, called The Triumph of Christianity. The subtitle of the book is How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World. And he's trying to answer the question, how did a small band of followers of Jesus convert what he calls an unwilling empire, the Roman Empire? He says, according to the New Testament, some days after the crucifixion, we all know that's three days, 11 of his male followers and some women came to believe Jesus had been raised from the dead. Uh, before four centuries had passed, these 20 or so lower class, illiterate, uh, Jews from rural Galilee had become a church, get this, of 30 million in 300 years, which is a blink out of an eye in history. And so naturally, he wants to ask the question, how in the world did this radical transformation take place? Now, books like this should come with a disclaimer, okay? Uh, he is a biblical scholar, and we'll say that loosely, at North Carolina University. All you need to know is he's the editor, the religious editor for Time Magazine, Okay. So in his book, he gives six reasons why Christianity spread exponentially. The first reason, he said, is it got lucky. Can you imagine that? He said the world was tired of paganism, and uh, they needed something new to come along. And right at the time where people no longer believed in myths or fables or the gods, Christianity filled this void. Now, what's strange to me is that Paul, who was the greatest missionary in the Christian era, uh, when he went to Athens to a place where they were totally given over to idols. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. By the way, that is our message, Jesus and the resurrection. They said, Paul, you're a babbler. And he had almost no converts in Athens, so hard to believe that's true. Uh, they said it was the worship of one God, monotheism, that the world was ready for. Well, the Jews were monotheistic for thousands of years, and they never had this kind of traction. Uh, they say it was a missionary religion, uh, the, the uh, conversion of Constantine and Paul, uh, exclusivity. People were born into a religion, now they could choose the religion, um, was one of the ideas. The promise of an afterlife and certain benefits Jesus promised. But nowhere does he mention the resurrection. In fact, I had to go to the glossary. Resurrection's only mentioned six times. And here's the ironic thing. The reason we're here this morning, 2,000 years later at Calvary Chapel, is because of the resurrection. 2,000 years ago, there was a weekend that changed the world, where a human being got up on Sunday morning, and for the first time in history, we had tracks going out of a graveyard. There are ripples that have come from that day. The explosion of manuscripts, the four gospels, the 27 books of the New Testament, the building of the church, on and on we could go. Skeptics will say, or people who have never really investigated this, will say, well, this is ancient times. People weren't as scientific, they weren't as modern, so they were prone to believe everything. That's not true. N.T. Wright, who has studied the, the resurrection more than most scholars, says if you review ancient records and accounts of resurrection stories, what you find in antiquity is it just doesn't happen. People aren't stupid. Their family and friends die and no one ever comes back to life. So they weren't dumber than we are, we're not smarter than they were. 
The belief in the resurrection should never be something you take for granted or just believe because somebody tells you. It's not scientific. It's not realistic. It never really happened. So why do we believe it? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, For I delivered to you among the most important things that I had received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and to over 500 at one time, and finally, last of all, to me. Paul said, why do I believe in the resurrection? I've seen the resurrected Christ. But don't take my word for it. There's over 500 people that will corroborate this story. Eyewitnesses, very important. But Paul said there's a greater reality. All that we know about Jesus Christ, his life, death, and burial, his resurrection was according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels? No, they weren't written yet. The Old Testament is the Bible Jesus, the disciples, and Paul read, and Paul is telling us that they give us a detail of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke gives us a fascinating piece of information in chapter 24 of his gospel on what happened on the first resurrection Sunday. This is Easter morning. He said, behold, two men were traveling that day to a village called Emmaus. It was seven miles out of Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. And so it was while they converse and reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained. They did not know him. He's in his resurrected form. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have as you walk with one another? Then one of them by name, Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who has not known the things which have happened these days? He said, What things? And they said, Things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. The chief priests now and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who would redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, Peter and John, and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then... Jesus said to him, this is so amazing, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets that have spoken, ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. The greatest Bible study ever given. Not the Sermon on the Mount. This was the greatest Bible study ever given. Jesus took them to the Old Testament and showed his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm sure he took them to Genesis, where Abraham is about to slay Isaac, and God says, no, don't slay your son, Abraham, because God himself will provide an offering. 
I'm sure he took him to Exodus 22 where it, where it talked about the slaying of the Passover lambs, where it talks about the lambs plural, and then it comes to singular. They shall be killed at twilight. Jesus was that lamb. I'm sure he took them to Jonah, just as the, you know, Jonah was in the belly and the heart of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And he certainly took them to the text we're going to look at today, Isaiah 53. It is one of the most profound texts in all the Bible, and we're going to show you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ there. So turn your Bibles there, but before we get there, I want to comment on what we just read and Jesus' resurrection appearances. He appears to the two on the road to Emmaus. He appears to the 12 in the upper room. He makes breakfast on the sea, John tells us, for the disciples. And what you need to know, that if this was a fabricated story, if this was a fairy tale, it would have certainly been embellished, wouldn't it? I mean, back in, in those days, if you were going to write a story like this, you would not write a mundane story of someone who you could barely recognize and you were having a conversation was. I mean, think about today. We love superheroes now, right? Big box office, Wonder Woman, the Black Panther. Why? We love people with superpowers. We love people that are better than us. So if I was writing this, first of all, I would have told you how Jesus rose. Wouldn't that have been cool? And then I would have told you he shined and he glowed and he levitated. And I would have given you all this detail. I would have had him go in the pilot and scaring the bejesus out of him in his bedroom. And so many cool things. We don't see any of that. In fact, you know what we see three times? Jesus eating with them. Broil fish, fish by the sea. Here we read on, he breaks bread with them and they see the nail-scarred hands. In that day to dine with someone meant to have intimacy with them, communion. What Jesus was showing in these post-resurrection experiences is that they could still have a relationship with him whether they could see him or not. Now, when we get to Isaiah 53, we are on holy ground. Uh, this is one of the most amazing parts of Scripture you'll ever see. Some have called it the Mount Everest of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said it was the Bible in miniature. Someone said it's the fifth gospel. D.L. Moody was asked, did he have a creed for what he believed? He said, yeah, Isaiah 53. So we've given you these little sheets today. You can keep them in, in your Bible. This is your gospel. This is the death uh, burial and resurrection of Jesus. And you guys want to have a little fun before we start? Okay, uh, don't take this to the bank. It's just cool. So your chapters and verses were not a part of the original inspired word of God. They were put in later, so when I tell you to turn to Isaiah 53, it doesn't take you two days, okay? Now the people that put them in were really smart, and they tried to figure things out and look for flow and commonality. But there's some strange things about Isaiah. They're actually fascinating. Uh, the first one is there are 66 books in the Bible. Guess how many chapters there are in Isaiah? 66, but it's better than that. The book naturally divides into two texts. The first 39 chapters talk about a servant, a suffering servant, a Messiah that would come to Israel. Guess how many Old Testament books there are? 39. The second 27 talk about the glory of that Messiah and a golden age, which starts in chapter 40 and is 27 chapters. 
the same amount of books we have in the New Testament. And when chapter 40 starts, that's what's quoted in the Gospels about the ministry of Jesus when he's baptized by John. One final thing. Uh, I can't prove this out, but I've heard it. Uh, probably haven't studied it out as much as I can. But if you take all the chapters and all the verses in the Bible, take a meat cleaver and divide it right in half, guess where you come? Isaiah 53. So we are on holy ground here. I want to read for you as a prelude, chapter 52, verse 13, where Isaiah says, behold. That means consider or gaze or this is going to blow your mind. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently or wisely. He shall prosper. He shall be exalted and extolled very high. Just as many were astonished at you, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouth. They will be in all of him. For what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. Now, he is writing to a nation that's ready to go into captivity. This tiny sliver of a nation that's about to go into Babylonian captivity, he said there is coming a ruler a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And kings will bow before him. This one will prosper. He will be mighty. I'm going to blow your mind. He's going to cover the earth. But here's the problem. He's going to be marred more than any other man. He's not going to come from royalty. He's not going to be wonderful or beautiful. This is why Isaiah 53, verse 1, begins with, who has believed our report? And the answer is not many, and certainly not the Jews. Jesus came to the Jews, and they believed him not. Salvation was of the Jews. And it's mind-boggling because Jesus said they should have known. There was the day of the visitation, Palm Sunday, when he came. He said they should have known from the Scriptures. But who has believed this report, or literally who can believe it? It's so out there, it's so mind-boggling. Who could believe this message? The servant of the Lord is the Messiah. Look at Zechariah 3.8, my servant the branch. We talked about Isaiah's prophecy of the one who would be born. Micah talks about Bethlehem. Uh, they all believed from Genesis 3 on, the Bible's first prophecy, that the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man, that's why we need a virgin birth, would crush the head of the serpent and he would bruise his heel. Crucifixion. From that point on, there's 322 messianic prophecies all concerning the life, death, and again, burial of who we now know as Jesus Christ. But who has believed this report? Muslims don't believe it. Jews don't believe it. Many Gentiles don't believe it. Now, he goes on to say... And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. This is why they don't believe. They don't believe because the mystery of godliness is this. It's very hard to comprehend. That's why it's a mystery. God became man. That's Christmas. God took on human flesh. The creator became the creation. Talks about the arm of the Lord here. Let's forget God's arm. Let's talk about his fingers. He created the earth in a span of his hand. Spoke the world into existence. 
Colossians says Jesus holds the world together by the word of his power. He's the atomic glue in an atom, holding everything together. And he becomes a man. And it says here he grew up. A lot of people like to look at the Gospels and say, what was it like Jesus as a toddler? Did he spill milk? Did he talk back to Mary? Was he the perfect kid? Did he get all A's? It boggles our mind that Jesus for 30 years worked at a carpenter shop. And all we really know about those years is he grew, he grew in stature and wisdom before God and man. At 12 years old, did you not know I'd be about my father's business? And he grew up as a tender plant. Out of dry ground, there had not been a word from God for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. The heavens were as brass and comes up this tiny shoot, this tender plant. Not hardy, tender. Why? Because he's not of this world. He's out of eternity. This world is not his home. Foxes have holes and birds has nests. The son of man had nowhere to lay his head. And he grew up and at the age of 30, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he read Isaiah and he begins his ministry. But verse 2b says, he had no form or comeliness. Uh, new King, Old King James, no majesty. And there was no beauty that we should even desire him. Now for those of you who saw the passion of the Christ, uh, Jim Caviezel's a really looking, good looking guy, isn't he? I mean, like, I'm a, somebody said amen. I mean, I'm a guy. I'm a guy and I know he's hot, right? I mean, he is the hottest Jesus there ever was. Problem is, I don't think Jesus looked like that. Because at his baptism, John was told, when you see the spirit descending like a dove, that's who it is. Not the guy with the halo, not the guy that looks Italian or French, right? In the garden, Jesus said, the one I kiss is the man. And, and this fights against us, right? We don't like average. We want, we want our kings to be regal. We want superpowers. We want, we want superheroes. We don't want the commonality that Jesus was or is. We want majesty. It goes on to say, he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it was, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded. He was bruised. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Anybody picking something up strange here? We're looking at a prophecy 700 years before crucifixion and Jesus was born, and we have eight verbs in the past tense. Who has believed our report? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He was despised. He was rejected. We'll get to that in a few minutes. What the writer is saying here is that this suffering servant died in our place. We call it substitutionary atonement. For hundreds of years, the Jews would bring lambs, slay them on an altar, and smoke would go up in the air. It was a sign of God's appeasement and atonement. And what they're realizing here is this was everything that was leading towards. This is the man that God would choose to lay the sickness and suffering of the world and everything that we have committed. And when he took it upon himself, remember in Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, one of his seven sayings was, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus didn't come in the world to condemn the world. He came that the world might be saved. That you and I would know 
God's joy and God's passion for each and every one of us. It said he was pierced because of our transgression. He was crushed because of our iniquities. That word pierced there, uh, they struggle with that word. Crucifixion didn't even exist. It means to thrust through, to literally pierce unto death. Crushed means to scourge, to, you know, again, think of the passion of the Christ. The stripes, the hard blows, the scars were all meant for our healing and God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's why Jesus quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sin of the world came upon him and the father turned his face away. Now, here's what's cool. The scars, the piercings, his hands, his feet, his side, right? Um, in each one of Jesus' resurrection appearances, uh, we see those scars, right? He breaks the bread and they said, man, our hearts burn within us, they could see it. Um, when he was in the upper room, they were afraid and he said, look, a, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. You know, put your fingers through my nail-scarred hands. Thomas isn't there. They tell Thomas he doesn't believe. Thomas says, I'm not gonna believe unless I see the nail-scarred hands. Now we call him Doubting Thomas, that's a bad name. He just needed more evidence, and that's okay. Some of you need more evidence. Next time Jesus appears, he said, Thomas, let's do a little show and tell. Come on up. Put your fingers through my nail-scarred hands. He was telling Thomas, whether I'm there or not, I'm always there. But why did Jesus retain his scars? In his resurrected form, did he really need his scars? He needed them for two reasons. One reason he needed them was for his humility. Revelation says, John saw a lamb as though it were slain. For all of eternity, he will bear these scars. Uh, do you remember what the guys were doing at the Last Supper? Remember? They're, separating, they're celebrating the Last Supper, and Jesus is getting everything ready, and they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. It's like a presidential election when you know your numbers are good and you're going to win. Who's going to get Secretary of State? Who's going to get Secretary of Commerce? Who's going to be the Secretary of the Interior? They're going to ride his coattails to glory. And then comes the anvil of the Roman Empire. Every nail driven is a sign that their life is over and their leader is gone. This one who had healed others cannot heal himself. And every time a nail was driven, their hope was gone. And all their belief that he was the Messiah was crushed. One final reason why I think Jesus retains those scars is to show us that's not what he needs from us. You know, we're not scourging ourselves for acceptance. We are already accepted. Every time I look at those scars, I'm reminded of how Jesus healed me. That those scars were meant for my joy. By his stripes, I'm healed. Stories you heard earlier and the stories around the room would be, oh my gosh, this was my sorrow and pain and this is what God has done. He's taken ashes and he's made them a beautiful thing. Now, verse seven says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shears. is silent, he opened not his mouth. He goes to Herod, to Pilate, to Herod, to Caiaphas, never says a word, except when the high priest says, I adjure you, by the word of God does Jesus speak. 
Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to crucify you? He said, you'd have no power unless it was given to you from above. And the whole crucifixion scene, everything we look at, the trial, everything that led up to the crucifixion is to prove Jesus is the sinless lamb, the spotted, unspotted lamb that they were choosing for their Passover. The centurion said, surely this man has done nothing wrong. Pilate washed his hand, said, I want nothing to do with this man. He put up on the plaque the king of the Jews. They said, no, take it down. He said he was the king of the Jews. He said, what I've written, I've written. And even Judas said, I betrayed innocent blood. Everything was done to show he was the lamb being slain from the foundation of the world. And he opened up, not his mouth, and he went willingly. How many times in Jesus' ministry did he say he was born to die? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He told the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem where I'll suffer by the chief priest and I'll rise again. Verse 8 said he was cut off from the land of the living. The only other time that's used in the Old Testament is Daniel. Where in Daniel we get the 70 weeks, which is a fantastic prophecy that gives us uh, all the events that will lead to the coming of the Messiah the first time and then his second coming. And it takes us literally to the day of Palm Sunday where Jesus said if these stones don't, if, if the people don't cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the very stones will cry out. Says, then the Messiah shall be cut off. It means he shall die, but not for himself. Then it moves to the second coming. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. That's Israel. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Guys, this is very important. Because uh, we're from Philadelphia, we like Rocky movies, right? Most of them are bad, but we still watch them all, right? So there's a Rocky movie. It's in the five, six, seven range, somewhere near there, uh, where Rocky is sitting at a gravesite in a folding chair. Now, my relatives are from South Philly, and that's really what they do. And Rocky's there, and he's talking to Adrian, right? And this is what happened when death comes. No one says goodbye. And really, we have no point of contact because there's no communication. So one of the things we can do is go to a gravesite. And we put flowers there, and we look at their name, and we, we probably talk to them. Now, think about all the world religions and world leaders. Uh, most of them, their tombs are venerated, where people make pilgrimages. Anybody find it strange that we know exactly where Jesus was buried, but yet the early church, at least for 300 years in the writing of Scripture, never talked about it? The New Testament says he was put in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Luke tells us that, and John, because you could go to uh, Joseph, and you knew where Arimathea was. They put a Roman seal there and 16 guards. You could have investigated it. But nobody had an interest. Why did they have no interest? Because he was not there. They had seen him. Why would you go to venerate at a tomb where you knew no one was. Now, when Constantine became a convert to Christianity, he let his mother Helen go back to the Holy Land, and she built churches on all these sites. We'll actually be there next week. We're not there because it has significance. We're just going there for history reasons. But it's another proof of the resurrection. Scholar J.T. Robinson of the University of Cambridge spent a lifetime studying the resurrection, said the burial of Jesus is one of the earliest and best attested 
facts concerning his life. It's one of the most important things we know. Verse 10 said, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for sin. Now, you gotta catch this. He, speaking of the suffering servant, shall see his seed or his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That's the resurrection. This one who would be scourged, tortured, and died would see the fruit of his labor. When Jesus rose from the dead, he saw the transformation in people. Folks, that's the resurrection in a 700-year-old document before the crucifixion, a 27-year-old document, 100-year-old document for you and me. Isaiah 53 gives us the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the humility of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the glory of Christ. But I want to leave you with two thoughts. The first thought I want to leave you with is, who has believed this message? And the preponderance of people who have not believed it are the Jewish people, and it's right smack in the middle of their Bible. They don't believe it because they don't read it. In Judaism, it's called the forbidden chapter. You can actually go out later on YouTube and look at this, you can read about it. In the synagogue, when there's a reading, there's a portion of the law and a portion of the prophets. It's apportioned ahead of time so that over a several year span, you get the entirety of it, kind of like you would read a one year Bible. Remember Jesus went into the synagogue and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That was his reading that day. Uh, a while back, they changed it in the synagogue that you read to the middle of chapter 52 and then you jump to 54. This is never read in a synagogue. It's a forbidden chapter. Before Jesus, every rabbi believed this was the Messiah. Now, guess who they say it is? The nation of Israel. This is not a man, a human being. This is the collective nation of Israel that has suffered this way. Now, that can't be true because there's personal pronouns all over the place. He bore our sins. He was afflicted. The Ethiopian eunuch, when Philip comes to him, says, what are you reading? He's reading Isaiah 53. Guess what the eunuch says when Philip says, can you understand or do I need to show you? He says, is, the, is this man writing about himself or someone else? The natural reading tells us this is a man. It can't be Israel because it said this one would die for the sins of his people, and that's Israel. It's impossible. Hebrews tells us that when the word of God is read even to this day, there's a veil over Jewish hearts. There was a man on the street interview done among Jewish people where they were read not Orthodox who know the word of God, but secular Jews, they were read portions of Isaiah 53 and they said it was Jesus and they said it came from the Christian Bible. They almost never read it. Here's the second thing. And it's one of the most profound things I have studied in 35 years. We read this as a prophecy. We read it in the future and certainly it is. It's one of the great fulfilled prophecies. We're accused of inserting Jesus here, but can I tell you this? 
Even though we're reading a prophecy, I think more than that, we're reading a confession. The Apostle Paul said that Gentiles, you and me, have been grafted in. We are a wild branch. Israel's been set aside. We've been grafted in, but there's a coming a time. Did you ever read this in Romans 9 11? All Israel will be saved. He said, don't boast because the one who grafted you in could take you out. And there's coming a day where all Israel will be saved. When Jesus comes in his second coming, it won't be in a manger. It says every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. Every king, every person, every tribe, every nation. Guess what happens to the Jewish people? Zechariah tells us, chapter 12 and 13. I will pour on the house of David upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they've pierced, and they shall mourn for him, and one will say to him, where did you get these wounds in your hands? And he will answer them, when I was wounded in the house of my friends. And you know what they're going to say on top of that? They're going to look at him and say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one away. This is a confession sometime in the future that no man knows the day or the hour. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Today, you and me are like Thomas. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help the deepest part of me that wants to believe. And now you have evidence. And now you know all that God has done and will do. The beautiful thing is, Jesus did not come and do all this to give you a creed or a new set of laws to live by or to fill a spiritual vacuum. He came that you might know him. Behold, I knock on the door. If you open the door, I'll come in and dine with you. We no longer live for God's approval. We live from his approval. We're no longer living that God might one day approve of us. He already has through Jesus. And now we live a life of freedom and grace. The beautiful thing about the resurrection is so many of us point to the sweet by and by in heaven. N.T. writes that the resurrection is the beginning of God's new program, not to take us all away to heaven, yeah, that'll happen one day, but to colonize earth with heaven's life. And that's what brought down an empire, and that's what brought about Western civilization, the care for the poor, the building of hospitals, and philanthropy all came because Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth. By the way, this is it. When you meet somebody in heaven from Jerusalem, tell them you came from the ends of the earth. Jesus came to destroy empires, isms, theories, everything that would shackle us and to make us whole because he loves us. So many of you who have entered in relationship with him, if you don't know Christ, look, this is a process. This is something that has to go from your mind to your heart where you, for once and for all, say, he is who he said he was. He's my Lord and Savior. And you bow your knee and your heart. 